Hey, this is Tyler Harmon. Thanks for listening. A while back, we did a full-day Marketing for Founders seminar for early-stage founders and owner-operators. There's a lot of really great insights in here from years of growing startups that I think any founder might find valuable. But before we dive in, just a quick disclaimer. This is a series cut from live recordings that I've edited down to about four hours of content. These concepts are easy to grasp, but it's calorie dense and there's very little fillers in here. So take your time with it. So without any further ado, let's get to it and try to keep up. Okay, so let's talk about sales now. One of my favorite sales guys, Jeffrey Gittimer, he says, the first sale is the salesperson. That's you in your ads, in your website, in your storefront. So it doesn't matter how good your product is if you screw up the first impression. Where a good first impression can buy you time to continue making the sale. Simply having the product or being open for business is just the ticket to the dance. Now you have to meet expectations and demonstrate value or promise. So if we use a candy bar as an example, meeting those expectations could be the wrapper. It needs to look good. It can't look like homemade Halloween candy. Number two, showing value or promise. If you got chocolate in lime green wrapping, that might look weird. People aren't going to see that and think, ooh, delicious chocolate. The thing here is, let people rely on familiarity a bit. Let that work in your favor. So let's take the simple idea of an aesthetic for your brand. It should be appropriate for what you're selling. Not appropriate like I use the F word in my email appropriate, but let's say you have a dine-in restaurant. Can you use really bold, interesting colors for your walls? Yeah, you can. This is America. You can do whatever you want. But make these bold choices at your own risk. Picasso said, learn the rules like a pro so you can break them like an artist. If you're a designer, if you're just really confident in your decision, then go for it. But if you're not, find somewhere else to take chances. This doesn't mean you can't swing for the fences, because you totally can. And you most certainly should swing for the fences. But let me ask you, is putting these bright, annoying colors on your walls the way you always dreamed of swinging for the fences? Make a statement with your products or the insane quality or something else. Ask yourself, is this really the hill that you want to die on? There are plenty of other ways to differentiate yourself. Use the normal conventions to a degree to work in your favor. And then find real opportunities to make a statement, ways to add value. So you've probably heard of the three modes of persuasion. Pathos, logos, ethos. Usually it's in a triangle when they do it. Pathos is emotion, the use of stories, likability. Then you have logos, that's logic, where you have guarantees, testimonials. Then you have ethos, that's trust, credibility. I always think of a white doctor coat. This is the big one. This is the first sale. So you need to use this and build trust and confidence to encourage people to do business with you. It's a safe bet. This also helps frame your product. White lab coat is official, it's academic, it's professional. 
This is where you should use these conventions and familiarities to your advantage. Like mechanic shops, they should look a certain way. Doctor's offices, they should look a certain way. Otherwise, it's just one more hurdle to overcome that might be unnecessary for what you're trying to accomplish. Unless, unless this is where you want to make your statement. So in LA, we have these amazing looking weed shops that look like Apple stores. They're very clean and legal looking. This was the hill that they wanted to die on. Compared to the shops that you see in movies and everywhere else, it looks like they're straight out of a Cheech and Chong movie. So maybe the design is part of that. Or being an outlier in your industry is the hill that you want to die on. So let's talk about that a little bit more. When it comes to head-to-head competition, you have to find out what else you do that no one's talking about. In real estate, you do this thing called a listing presentation where you pitch a homeowner on letting you list their home for sale. And we always have this same page in our listing presentation book. It's where we talk about syndication. It's where we list all the properties on certain platforms. It goes on the MLS and then it shoots out to Zillow and Trulia and Redfin, Realtor.com. There's like a hundred other platforms. So we tell them we have this tool which helps increase the visibility of your listing for anyone looking for a home, which increases the likelihood of the right person seeing your home. Some agents, when they get to that page, they spend a lot of time on it. So you can use this to your advantage and kind of throw them under the bus. I used to say, have you seen this page before? Great. Everyone does this. It's the same thing. Let's get on to more important stuff. Boom. You just took what they did and made it completely routine to where it took a lot of the wind out of their sails. So don't talk about the same things as everybody else unless you're really good at talking about those things. That's a great reason to do it. In sales, I think we can all agree by now that it's not the best product that wins. It's who can describe it the best, educate the customer on why it's important. I'll say this, not all competition is bad. Some competition gives your brand more context. You can use it to anchor. We're the Uber of courier services. So here's a really good thought exercise to do. I want you to picture an XY axis chart in your head. The most common things you could compare with something like this is price and quality. So you have the four different quadrants, high price, low price, high quality, low quality. So if you have like Rolls Royce, like, you know, if we're going to do cars, you got Rolls Royce, which is high price, high quality. That goes up in the top right quadrant. Then you have Toyota, which is low price, high-ish quality. So you'd probably put that, you know, close to the middle on the right, let's say. And just, you can plot them all out. You can do that for your own industry. High price, low price. You could have really low quality stuff that's cheap that people could use. This lets you get as entrenched as you want to get. If you want to compete on price, go for it. But if you ask me, it's a race to the bottom. But what if you could create your own playing field with no trench warfare anymore? Here's an example. Let's say you're a personal trainer. You have options on how you can run your business and how you position it. Are you helping your clients with their overall health? or just to look good, like you work on the glamour muscles. You don't have to say it that way, but you could say, I'm going to make you look like a million bucks. 
Or do you work on endurance training or strengthening or maybe it's weight loss? Is it a fun environment or is it like military style CrossFit? Is it group sessions, individual sessions? You could have something where it's it's designed to be fun and you're going to look great after you work out with me. Now, there's no trench, there's no commodity, and you are very unique. Like we've talked about the lemonade example before where you can use the phrase, I am the only. If you position it this way, you can charge anything you want for this because you just changed the playing field and nobody else is your direct competitor on this. You just created your own XY axis. You didn't just level the playing field. You found a way to create a kind of monopoly here. Like another example is let's say you're an author. There's no competition against other authors because maybe if you have one idea and another author has a different idea and you could battle it out that way. But think about it this way. What if you were the only book? That's crazy. You want variety out there. People who read one book probably read other books too. So this works in your favor. Like if you're a pizza place, sure, you're going to have loyalists, but there's so many different variety of pizzas out there. It depends on your mood. So that competition is kind of a benefit to you. Of course, if someone just flat rips you off in your whole business, then, you know, then you have real entrenched competition. And it's probably time to ramp up on the quality there. If we think about the risks of selling, the sellers take on very little risk where the customers, they take on the bulk of the risk when it comes to making a sale. They take a risk at every single step in the process. Not risking their life, but losing money, time wasted, inconvenience, being fooled. So from the first click or walking into a store or answering a phone or opening a cold email or even after they bought the product like cognitive dissonance, don't make them regret it at any step. Make them confidence and reinforce their choice at every single step. So there's this joke that Brian Regan tells, like when you go into a nice steak house, they always reinforce your decision. I'll have the burger. Excellent choice. So I mentioned this before. The fear of loss is greater than the desire to gain. Everything is either a threat or a reward. What are your customers risking? What possible things could they gain? It has to be evident, the rewards. This goes back to the whole preemptive cynicism, really poking holes in your business and your products here. So go back and think about the hierarchy of needs and how that fits in here. Imagine you could write two books for business owners, how to lower costs, how to increase sales. Which one's going to sell more? It depends on where these people are in the hierarchy. If they're losing money every day in their business, their priority is to stop the bleeding. If they're losing their ass, I bet lowering costs sounds more possible and more reasoning for where they are. Their life is shit, wall to wall in their business at the moment, and they can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. They're filled with doubt. Plus, they're used to people promising us impossible things. And we're desensitized to this promise of growth. Like, you know, these BS guarantees we get about growth in our email every single day. They're too good to be true. 
So in the event any of these were real, they're going to get lumped in with the rest because of how they got positioned. So we lay that hierarchy over loss and gain, and you might have to eliminate the loss first before you can even approach the desire to gain. So since buyers take the majority of risk in any transaction, you might have to get creative especially if what you're selling isn't familiar to them or a typical purchase. If you're selling shoes, easy. But if you're selling a horse to someone who doesn't typically buy horses, that's different. Jay Abraham, he used this concept of risk reversal and he used this example of selling a horse. So one option would be buy this horse, it's $5,000. If you don't like it, return it, get your money back. Or option B, is where you lower the risk to the customer. We'll bring the horse to your stable and we'll teach your daughter how to care for it and feed it and ride it. And after 30 days, if you're not comfortable with the horse or happy with it, we'll come by and we'll pick up the horse and we'll bring it back. But if you do like it, at that point, we're gonna be asked to be paid the $5,000. If you're making very few sales in your business, this is a good place to start. Odds are, it's not your price. So don't start lowering your price willy-nilly. This is one of the 10 myths of marketing. I am certain that most people who haven't figured out their sales process couldn't give away their products. It's the confidence that the customers have in your product. So if you discount your product so much, you're gonna end up sending the wrong message and you're gonna lose sales for an entirely different reason. The key is to look where your customer stands to lose the most and start by addressing that. So speaking of lowering the price, this is the war cry of the digital marketer. Discounts, lower the price, buy one, get one, race to the bottom. Sometimes lowering the price can have the opposite effect. So if you see two similar products and one is half the price, what are you gonna think? If you're buying a can of beans at the grocery store, probably nothing. What about fish at the deli counter? Half off or cheap tequila? What if you're buying a car seat for a baby? Many cases, it's not about price and you just made it about price the wrong way. So there are things in life that people skimp on. Is your business one of those things that people skimp on? If you are, then you have a very hard road ahead of you racing to the bottom. But if you're not, then stop trying to raise, to lower your prices. This isn't an objective thing either. Price is relative. So if Rolls-Royce tries selling their cars at a car show, they're gonna be the most expensive car at the show. But if Rolls-Royce starts selling their cars at yacht shows or private jet shows, now they're impulse buys like candy at the checkout aisle. You can toss it on at the last minute and buy one of these things. Basically, this is a form of behavioral economics, kind of a decoy price that helps position your products in a better light. So let's talk about price versus cost. Suppose there are two bikes at the store you're gonna buy for your kid. You got the name brand Huffy Bike, costs 100 bucks, and then you got the generic brand for 50 bucks. So let's say you decide to save $50 and buy the generic one. After a couple of months, it's gonna need new handlebars, new brakes, new bearings, gonna need a new seat. So after being nickel and dimed, it ends up being more expensive than the Huffy was to begin with. 
So you end up getting tired of being burnt and buy the Huffy outright. So in sales, you just can't make the product better and expect that people are going to understand that. Most people don't understand why they're paying for a name brand. They think it's because of the advertising. In a way it is, but that's because of what they learn from the ads and how you explain the value. So make sure that the customer knows the true cost, not just the price. And also when we're talking about price, don't discount value add. Like if you owned a restaurant and chicken is expensive, don't discount the chicken. You're going to lose. But for the same price, you could give them something that costs almost nothing to make, like fries and a Coke. So if you order expensive makeup online, give them a cool-looking mirror or a special applicator brush or something. I saw a tea company the other day, and they were giving away free spoons to stir their teas. And people were excited about it for a cheap-ass spoon. Here's a pop quiz. I got a question for you about the organ donor program. So between two countries, Germany, Austria, more people in Austria are organ donors compared to Germany. So they have very similar cultures, religious beliefs. They share a border. Why does Austria have more organ donors than Germany? I'll tell you. It's how they ask the question when people enroll in the program. The concept is called opting in versus opting out. Opting in is explicitly making the choice to do something. Where opting out means that you're already enrolled and now you have to check a box and say no. So with Germany and Austria, how big of a difference is the enrollment rate in the organ donor program? In Germany, where you have to deliberately opt in, 15% of the people are organ donors. But in Austria, with the opt out, 90% of the people are organ donors. I've read as high as 98, but even 90% is astronomical compared to 15%. So there is a slight consideration in if you're gonna choose opt in, opt out. In Austria, it's a thing you do. It's not begrudgingly, but there's not pride in enrolling in this. But in Germany, there is a significance, kind of like a pride of opting in that I, I am an organ donor. There's a little bit of pride behind that. But the numbers are so stark. This chasm is so wide. Who cares? Plus, it's not like they're going to willingly give up their organs anyways. They're gone by then. So this example is not really the best for that. A better example would be auto gratuity at a restaurant. You can just stick on the 18% at the bottom of the check without taking a risk of getting stiffed by the customer. The risk could be is that the person would have tipped more. So some people do take pride in the fact that they're good tippers. So auto gratuity could deprive them of tipping lavishly. But then again, even here, the fear of loss is greater than the desire to gain. So we've all worked in restaurants and spent hours on a table to get nothing from these people and they stiff us. So autogratuity, easy choice. But consider quality over quantity. Like I mentioned before, organ donors, doesn't matter how willing they are, does it? But 
What about repeat customers, returning app users? There may be a pride thing there if you start auto-gratuiting these people. So one way to think about this is email marketing. Do you just blast emails to everybody even if they have bad open rates and they never do it? Because you're going to start getting punished by Google and you might end up in the spam folder instead of the promotions tab. Or do you have a very small audience with really high engaging people? But with a good group of people, you're going to get different feedback when you speak to your tribe. These are your true fans. This feedback loop is a lot stronger and you can really work on your brand this way. But sometimes it's a quick thing to just increase your conversion by doing something really easy that needs to happen. It doesn't always have to be this existential conundrum. You can make a quick change and see a big difference, but it's worth looking into. Sometimes the sheer numbers with quantity still work out in your favor over quality, but sometimes quality is definitely the way to go. You got to look into it. So with opt-in, opt-out, Let's, let's look at an example. Let's say you have a meditation app. You got a free version, there's a pay version with way more features, and then you got the free trial. I can say from experience that the conversion rate from downloading the app to registering and starting the free trial is lower than you think. But most people also stay in the free version forever and never initiate the free trial. So what if you automatically enrolled everybody in the free trial. No choice. Take a page out of Austria's book. They use the whole app. They're using all the features and then you lock them down. Are they now satisfied with the free version or do they need one or two of the paid features? Like most people don't enroll in it because they don't want to know what they're missing. They're just going to make do. So if you show them the best version first and then you yank it back a little bit, Maybe there's a little bit of love lost there. Or maybe they just go, hey, there's ads now, so you can pay to not have ads anymore. All right, so we're going to get back to that in a second, but first I'm going to tell you about some sales techniques. There's two big sales techniques, and they kind of came from door-to-door salesmen. The first most people know about is called foot in the door. Our product's only $99, but then there's shipping, activation fees, convenience fees. There's this concept of sunk costs. It's our tendency to just keep going. We've already spent so much time and money and effort. Let's just do this. So a lot of things that I hear in marketing is just get them in the app. Maybe they'll see how good our free products are and eventually they'll upgrade. Maybe, but you really, really, really need to track the behavior and see. The other option to foot in the door is door in the face. Knock, knock. Hey, we got this product for $300. You go to slam the door on them and they go, no, wait, I can lower it to $99. In negotiating, this is called anchoring bias. We judge everything based on the first piece of information that we get. So back to the meditation app. Let's get everybody to opt in to the free trial and make them love the features. But then we lock them out after the free trial. And then we show them the tag, the full app. It's expensive, $39.99 a month, and you get all these features. But when you show them this, maybe you can let them see the features that they're using and contrast and compare it against the ones that they don't use. Like, maybe they realize they don't need the full subscription that you're trying to push on them. They discover that they can have everything that they use and not the other half of features that they don't 
for half the price or even a third or whatever the price. So this goes back to behavioral economics and decoy pricing. They feel smart. They just outwitted you. And now they own the decision and they subscribe to the deal of a lifetime. Such sly little customers. So these concepts, opt-in, opt-out, foot in the door, door in the face, these can help you shave off valuable seconds off of your time. But these aren't paradigm shifts in selling. At the end of the day, you still need to drive real desire for what someone actually wants that you're selling. So this is a big one. This is grease versus gravity. So first let's talk about grease. Think of a funnel. How can you reduce friction at each step? You got the checkout process to auto-populate the name, the address, the phone number with the keypad. You got Apple Pay, PayPal, and you start testing button placement and work on the product page and the cart page layout. Conversion rates through the funnel improve everywhere, but nobody's buying. Maybe there's an issue with the purchase button or the page isn't loading fast enough. You got the classic, maybe we need to lower the price or give them a promo code or do the abandoned checkout follow-up. You know, send them emails as soon as they abandon. You know, people are actually conditioned for these abandoned checkout follow-up. They will add something to a cart, put in their email, abandon, and then wait for the email or wait for the retargeting ads for the discount. This process is called conversion rate optimization, CRO. It can work. But this is not the end-all be-all. In fact, this is what you do for an engine tune-up. These CRO experts, they're not salesmen. They're not equipped to close sales, but they can shave off seconds, assuming you're already running a good time. But if you're barely crossing the finish line, then this kind of work is inappropriate at the moment. What's more valuable to you now is gravity. So with gravity, Think about a big slide, like at the playground, those, those fully enclosed ones. Grease is how slippery it is. Gravity is how sloped it is towards the ground. Like, whenever my three-year-old goes to a park or an indoor play place, I try to make sure he wears good slide pants. You know, a lot of the jeans, they're really sticky on those plastic slides. But with a nice pair of soft sweatpants, you can fly down those things. Gravity answers a big question. Do people actually want your product? Let me ask you this. How many times have you bought a product online with the worst checkout flow in the world? Similarly, how many times have you almost bought something but canceled at the last minute? Site loads fast, your email and address is already loaded, they got PayPal, Apple Pay. You catch yourself and you say, this is stupid, I don't want this. This is when we work on making this greasy, slippery funnel and improve conversion rates at every step, people slide all the way to the end of the funnel without actually wanting it. If I had a nickel for every time someone had the brilliant idea, let's remove the add to cart and checkout and shorten that funnel, I'd have probably 12 nickels. Let's eliminate those precious clicks. Nobody cares. Clicks are easy. I've seen people actually move the button closer to the bottom of the screen, like people can't be bothered 
to stretch all the way to the middle of that screen. Like, I'm not going to move my thumb an extra half inch to buy this thing. Plus, they also want 50% off. What you need to do is work on selling the product. The hacks, the tweaks, the button color, the promo codes. If you do do these things, you might see this spike in conversion, get all excited, then it goes away. I call this noise. So you start testing new audiences, and then you say Facebook is worthless, and you try YouTube and TikTok and Pinterest. Now you're playing the slot machines, and you are the one that's being gamed. These slot machines were designed to keep you hooked, and they are experts at understanding rewards in these dopamine releases. Let's talk about six ways to increase your sales. They are raise prices, keep the customers you have, increase the frequency of sales, increase the average order value, bring in new customers, and fire bad customers. So number one, raise prices. How did you arrive at your price initially? Did you eyeball it? Did you just throw out a number? Is this the going rate? Or did you test it, experiment with it? Will people pay 10% more for your product? No? Why? Does your product suck that bad that they won't anymore? Is it not worth 10% more? Is it a commodity? Go back and think about your initial reaction when I suggested raising prices. What does that mean? Number two, keep the customers you have. This is retention. Existing customers are cheap. New customers are expensive. This goes back to the 10 myths of marketing. You don't need to market to existing customers. Not true. Number three, increase frequency of sales. What do you sell? Can you get them to order more often? Rewards Club, earn points every time you do that. Alka-Seltzer, they had this brilliant campaign decades ago. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. They doubled sales with this one ad campaign. Don't just use one at a time, use two at a time. And their numbers, they, they doubled. Number four, increase average order value. Here, there are some cheap hacks that you can do pretty quickly, like free shipping on orders over $50. But what if you add value? Bundle, value meal, lots of opportunities here. Restaurants, add an appetizer. Second round of drinks, get them comfortable. Let them settle in and then upsell. You should assume that they want to be there. Assume they like shopping. Assume they like your products. Of course they want another drink. Number five, bring in new customers. This is everyone's go-to. If you're a new business, then yes, you have to start here. But if you have a book of business already, then you don't have to do this one first. But obviously, this is a great way to increase sales too. And number six, fire bad customers. There's the 80-20 law, Pareto's law. 80% of your problems are from 20% of your customers. Think of the time you spend on these customers where you could be giving love to your good customers. If you do that, maybe they'd come back more often or they'd spend more each time. Also, you might be playing to the lowest common denominator. If you have high volume of low revenue transactions, they probably make up a small percentage of your total revenue, 80% 
of your customers make up 20% of your revenue. They're low spenders. But is your messaging and your catering to these people? Like, maybe by changing your tune and talking more to the big spenders, you'll get more of them instead. But on the other hand, maybe all your customers start cheap and they increase the amount of revenue that they do every single time over time. Again, you've got to do the research on this. Go back and look at the sales. Don't just guess on this. Thanks for listening. Next one is a doozy. We're going to talk all about advertising. We're going to go over a few basics that will help you sound smart in meetings when you're talking with marketing know-it-alls, A-B testing, some old-school classics, and some new-school stuff like how marketing algorithms work. Don't want to miss this one. In the meantime, if you have any questions, suggestions, or need help with your own marketing, check out tylerharmon.com or the Rad Dad Marketing website at raddadco.com.